0: welcome to blackbird episode number 77 my name is james and today i am thrilled to bring to you a conversation i've been waiting to have for a very long time this is an interview with matt erickson Of course, you know Matt as the host of King Pilled and Jason Stapleton's co-host on his show and also as a previous guest on Blackbird along with LB Muniz a few months ago. Matt is, of course, a very insightful cultural commentator and sort of a former or maybe post-libertarian, if you will. And I wanted to talk to him about sort of his worldview, what he's been learning over the last couple of years. His journey into Orthodox Christianity and just, you know, kind of the problems that he sees. And I tend to agree with him kind of inherent in libertarianism and what we can do to reshape our worldviews. This conversation has gotten some really good reviews from the paid subscribers who have gotten the early preview for it. And I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's a little bit on the long side. And if these are topics that don't appeal to you, that, you know, feel free to skip it, I guess. But You know, if you have any passing interest in sort of mysticism versus materialism, the nature and flaws in modernism and the enlightenment and that sort of thing, then I really think that you're going to enjoy this conversation. And I hope that you will listen to it with an open mind and hopefully it will open your eyes a little bit because, of course, that's what this show is all about, learning to see. Speaking of the paid subscribers, of course, if you head over to blackbirdpodcast.com slash subscribe today, slide me a couple of bucks a month. It helps me keep the lights on and know that you know my work is appreciated. And of course, there will be more on that at the end of the show. So let's just get into it. Here is my conversation with Matt Erickson. Matt, welcome back. First time solo on the show. You've been here before with LB, but uh, why don't you go ahead and reintroduce yourself for people who haven't heard you before?
1: It's very good to be here. Thanks for having me back. This has been a, a conversation that I've been looking forward to. So, I guess for those who don't know who I am, I would be one half of the, of the King Pilled team. We have a—it's a, really just a YouTube show for right now, but a, a podcast, YouTube show called King Pilled. And honestly, I was just—I was just on the phone with Adam Patrick today, a mutual friend of ours, and I, I told him that. If somebody came up to me and they asked me to describe what Kingpilled is in ten words or less, I would have no idea. I don't know how, and that's something that I'm trying to consolidate. That's something I'm trying to put together because, because we have some stuff that we're wanting to do here going forward, and I'd like to be able to, to, refer to the show more easily. But but generally speaking, it's a, I guess it's kind of tracking my journey through the the way I approach the show is that I'm tra- I'm tracking my journey through. Digging into the philosophical underpinnings of libertarian theory, and I found myself at Orthodox Christianity, and that's kind of the that's kind of the gist of it. And and so we're 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 sort of figuring out where we're going to go from here with that. But we we spend a lot of time talking about that. And then I'm also most active on on uh, on Twitter um, at Rooking Pill. That's where I, I do a lot of shit posting, and and uh, I get some people riled up apparently, <laughs> and it uh, it it turns into good content potentially, but. Uh, Given everything going on in my life, I don't always have time to attend to all of that content. But, um, but yeah, so that's, that's that's basically me in a nutshell right now.
0: Uh, I want to I want to hear how you got from libertarianism to to uh, Orthodox Christianity. It sounds like Cyprian took a similar route. I mean, did you guys uh, did you guys confer at all, or were you independent of one another? Um, he was very much ahead of me
1: on this. He was actually okay. an influence on me. He was one of the reasons that I I began going that direction. It was it was a kind of a whole confluence of things that have, it's been very serendipitous. And that's been part of what has kind of given me a a hint that I'm, I'm over the target that I keep running into all of these, these serendipitous happenings surrounding it. For example, my dad and I were both, so I, I was raised seventh day Adventist, which is just about as, as far away from Orthodox Christianity as you can get within still something that considers itself Christian. And uh, that's how I grew up. Mostly my family has kind of over the last several years, they've, they've really shifted to a, be a lot more um in the reformed camp. They're very big RC Sproul fans. And that's, that's kind of where they've been. That's where uh, my siblings and my mom still, still are. But uh, it turns out that my dad and I were both digging into Orthodox Christianity at the same time for about a month mm-hmm. and without realizing it, we started comparing notes and realized that we were kind of looking at all the same things and, um, listening to the same shows and that sort of thing. So uh, that was another one of those serendipitous things. But, uh, and now, now my dad, he, he calls himself an Orthodox Christian. He's not a catechumen or anything yet, but he, that's how he, he describes himself to other people. So for me, man, I, what really got me started around the time that Stephen and I uh, started King Pilled, we had been reading a lot of Moldbug. And I found Moldbug just... Just incredibly compelling. Just doesn't matter. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't launch into this as like, okay, I need to figure out what are all the problems with libertarianism. I considered myself an anarcho capitalist. I considered myself not just an anarcho capitalist, but about as radical as you could get for an anarcho capitalist. I was fully bought in, one hundred percent. Um, I'd read very little Hoppe, but I read a lot of Rothbard and was mm. fully, fully 100% ideologically bought in. I was, I was the guy who's arguing that Jesus was an anarchist and that the Bible prescribes anarcho-capitalism, essentially, if you read between the lines, that's where I was. And I started reading Moldbug because he was interesting. I just, I just read an article a one of his pieces, I think his, his, his essay on formalism. And I was like, oh, this is a really interesting, this is a really interesting take. And then I read why I'm not a libertarian. And I was like, Oh, that's okay. That's an interesting thing. I don't agree with him, but you know, this guy, I like the way this guy thinks. I like his approach to to history. And I've always had a, a soft spot for, um, I guess you, I hate, I hate saying this, but, but like alternate history, the, the history that is, is different from whatever the the common people have been taught in um, within say the mainstream uh, ethos and I, uh, or the zeitgeist and so as I was listening to him, I was like, there's a lot of he's he's describing historical events in a way that I've never I've never heard. I've never understood these things this way. This is very interesting to me. And it and it fits. It makes sense. Like there's things that I didn't realize were dots that didn't connect until he connected them. And then I realized that those dots were there. And so I started sort of questioning myself as a, as a so-called libertarian, but Where I really started thinking of myself is I was like, well, this is actually, I feel like most people who call themselves libertarians haven't taken their philosophy to the logical conclusion. And I want to do that. So I want to to move libertarianism forward. I want to bring libertarianism with me. And I want to continue this process of digging into these ideas and getting deeper and deeper and, and trying to figure out how to make this stuff practical and relevant and consumable Because as I've been working with Jason Stapleton and and, and really focused on things like marketing and branding, one thing that he talks about all the time is that you have to enter the conversation people are already having in their head. And I realized that libertarians are all just talking to each other. They're not not talking in a way that's ever going to be uh, consumable to the populace. And I was like, well, this is a major problem. And and furthermore, they have a terrible call to action. Their call to action is, is essentially non-existent.
0: But right now people are well, trying to create one. Their call to action is Jesus's call to action, like give up everything you own, or give give up everything that's given to you, and take up get, make sacrifices, take up your cross. Right, but it's without the promises that that Jesus promised his followers. Right, and it's it's to, to
1: what end? Sacrifice to what end? Yeah, and I'm watching this whole take over the L.P. thing happening, and and I'm like, okay, two years ago if I'd have encountered this, I would have been at the front lines. I would have been, I'm, I was very closely associated with the LPMC when it was first being created because mm-hmm. I was like, this is what I'm interested. This is where, this feels like the type of thing that can make a difference. We could really start something, get lots of people's attention. And, and but I started thinking, but like, if these ideas are so good, why are they not appealing to people more? Like, why is it so hard to try to sell these ideas to people if they're so good? If this is, if this is the truth, if we have the truth, then why are we all just sitting around talking to ourselves? Why is it not? And furthermore, why is it not changing our lives? Why are people with these fantastic ideas not becoming better people? In some cases, why are they becoming much worse? And so these are all the different ideas that were running around in my head, but I still, I still considered myself a libertarian. I, I was like, I wanted to be a better libertarian. And I, feel, I felt like everyone around me was, 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 was letting down the libertarian label and I wanted to be better. So um, as I understood, one of the big aha moments for me with, with Moldbug was he traced a line through the, the Puritans and to the modern day. He, he made a connection in there where I, I can't remember exactly how he framed it, but essentially that modern American popular culture and, and the, like the American myth is an atheist Protestantism. That was essentially the way that he said it. He said that it was yeah. essentially like, the, like like taking the Reformation, and going all the way to the point where you reformed Christ out of the church. Mm -hmm. And that just absolutely exploded in my mind when he said that. And just at the same time, I was reading the book Dominion by Tom Holland, which chronicles the evolution of Christianity, of Christian culture throughout the last 2000 years. And Tom Holland's conclusion is essentially that we are all Christians today, culturally speaking. We are all cultural descendants of Christianity.
0: There's a Catholic uh, writer, and I, I don't I don't remember who it was. I want to say it was Chesterton, but I, I could be wrong. He said in America, everyone is Protestant, even the Catholics, and yeah. and even even I mean Thad Russell's primary thesis is that America is part and parcel with and completely uh, uh, unable to be separated from the Puritan work ethic. Yeah, like that's that's who we are, and that is in a nutshell American culture even the atheists are atheist
1: in a christian way
0: yeah exactly and that's i mean that, that's why progressivism which you know got its start in the early 20th century but now is taking this form as uh, like not just like a religion but but like actually a religion
1: and it's 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 christianity you, you if you read like the subtext it's christianity trying to purify itself uh-huh. it's a I, and i don't want i want to make be sure that i'm i'm clear that i'm not saying that it's actually Christianity. I'm speaking in terms of like a cultural phenomenon, that this is yeah. a, this is a, in, the same, in the sense you would call Rome pagan, the United States today is Christian. It's Christian in that everybody is operating with a, with a worldview that they would not have were they not directly descendant from mm-hmm. Christianity. And and if you took people, if you took modern Westerners, really the, the rest of the world is essentially just kind of like vassal states of the United States at this mm-hmm. point. But if you take, just to use be specific, you take Americans, they view the world more like Christians than they do like any other worldview ever in the history of the world. <clears throat> they buy out for all intents and purposes, their morality, their ethics, their, their even their conception of time as linear. That's something that's, that's, that's a product of Christianity. That's a product of the perception of the Bible of time having a beginning and an end. These are all things that are, are influenced by Christianity. And then- where it really, really got me kind of being like, okay, I, I don't know any of this stuff. I really need to just step back and try to understand all this. Is I, I realized there was these, these, these dual, dual forces happening at the same time, where you watch in the political sphere, you see throughout the course of the, I don't know, 15, 16, 17, 18, 1900s, throughout that whole course of those several centuries, there's a decentralization effect happening where you're going from, a conception of sovereignty as being vested in a, a a powerful head of state, and then it gradually disseminating out to where now there's like absolute radical individualism, where every single person is a sovereign, and and even morality is relative to the individual person. There was this great decentralization in political philosophy. At the same time, there was a like totally in parallel with it, there was a great decentralization in religious philosophy, where. You went like the Reformation is a decentralizing effect. Today, the way that that Protestants view the Bible is much the same way that libertarians view the Constitution, or even anarchists would view something like the Constitution, where the church, on one hand, the church is something that that each of us uh, can kind of determines for ourselves. We, uh, engaging with the Bible is a personal thing between me and the Holy Spirit. And, and, and the Holy Spirit will relate to me directly and um, God will, will guide me and lead me. And I can open the Bible. I can study it. I can understand it all for myself. I don't need these institutions intermediating for me. It's a direct me to God thing. And at the same time, on the political side of things, you have, we don't need the states. We don't need all these hierarchies, these hierarchies of power. Power needs to be vested in the individual. So both of these worldviews, both, of these world views, both hold the individual as sacrosanct. And I realized that there's no way that those two forces could have happened in parallel like that by accident. Sure. This, is, this has to be connected. And that's what led me. I, I, so that kind of clicked me. I was like, you, p- politics and religion are the same thing. It's a, it's arbitra- we've arbitrarily divided these into two separate camps and we mm-hmm. try to keep them separated from each other. But that's another uniquely Christian thing. That would, that didn't exist. If you go back to, to ancient Greece, they had no conception of religion. There sure. wasn't religion. It wasn't like the separate part of your, like you read in the encyclopedia and it like breaks a, a, a people group down by, maybe there's their, their economy, their agriculture, their, you know, their, um, their military, their, their demographics, whatever. You know, it breaks it down by segments. And one of those subsets would be religion. They would have had no conception for that. Religion was just life. It was just this thing that you, it, 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 didn't, it wasn't this, this um, segmented off subset of life. Um, so all of this, I'm kind of bringing all this back around. This is what led me back. I'm like, okay, well, I need to, to truly understand what's happening now. I need to go back. And, and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go back to, uh, you know, the, the civil war. Okay. Now I'm going to go back to the revolutionary war. Okay. Well, now I'm going to go back to the reformation, Well, now I need to go back to the great schism. I, I just, I keep going back further and further. And I'm like, all of these ideas didn't just begin in 1776. This stuff didn't begin with Locke. It didn't begin with Luther. It didn't begin with with William of Ockham or Anselm. All of this stuff, these are all ideas that are being worked out in real time, and people are building off of other people's ideas. And ideas are directed by incentives, by the incentives of those who, who are pursuing them. And if you understand the incentives of the person pursuing the idea then you could better understand the idea because you understand why that person happened upon that idea when they did, which tells you more about the idea.
0: Do you have a method or mechanism for discerning what someone's incentives are based on their, based on their actions? You know, some, someone long dead. That's something that I've been struggling with a little bit.
1: That's a really good question.
0: I don't think I have something
1: I could necessarily just... Uh, I don't think there's like a there's like a specific rubric or something that I would use yeah. or or a specific heuristic you know I think it's just like um it's kind of intuition I suppose. Yeah.
0: Well, and you have to know history in order to know philosophy I think probably as part of well, it. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have to look at the world that Marx was living in in order to understand Marxism. You can't just yes. read Marxism, read Marx's books, you know, in 2021 and say, "Oh yeah, this is brilliant. What, yeah, absolutely. Let's do this." I mean, it's it's we're not in the middle of the industrial revolution, you know. I mean, things he said, some of them definitely hold value. I think Hoppe has done a lot of work on that, but you know, same goes with like Hegel. I've never read Hegel. Um, I, Me neither. <laughs> I, I, I kind of know what a dialectic is, and I'm interested in the people he influenced, especially like Max Stirner. But I'm scared to read Stirner because I don't know Hegel. and. I'm scared to read Hegel because I don't really know when he lived and what was going on or, or even really who influenced him. So I don't know. It's it's it to me going down rabbit holes like that is scary. Um, how come you landed on Orthodoxy and not Roman Catholicism? Uh, frankly, it was probably the mysticism that, that was what,
1: that was what really, uh, it was that and the fact that it was older. I was, I'm trying to go back as far as I can. I want to go back to uh, like, I'm a huge Graham Hancock fan. Like, I want to go back to, you know, the, the, the um, Younger Dryas period. Like, I want to be able to trace things as far back as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it was older made it more interesting to me. And then probably also subconsciously, if I'm really honest with myself, being, having been a Seventh-day Adventist uh, I don't know how much you know about Seventh Day Adventism, no,
0: I'm, but I'm Catholic. I know.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. They they are they are not fans of of yeah. Catholicism. <laughs> yeah, and so so there was there's kind of a latent sort of thing there, but ultimately it was the mysticism.
0: I had no idea. So Catholic apologetics, which is something that I studied for a long time, um, you know, in a previous life, years and years and years ago. Catholics trace the lineage of the popes all the way back to Peter. And Peter being the first bishop of Rome, that makes Catholicism older. I had no idea that the Orthodox um, patriarchs actually trace their lineage back to the apostles as well. Mm -hmm. That's just not something that Catholics learn, I guess. Yeah. I, I was very surprised to learn that recently. Uh, and then actually you know, I mean, it's
1: it's it's more than just the patriarchs it's the, the the each individual priests each of the individual priests themselves can trace their to my understanding I'm so I'm to be very clear i'm I'm now in the process of becoming a catechumen that's Amy and I are meeting with a priest next week. we've been attending so cool. the church for about a month now, and we're in that process so, so sometimes if i'm if I'm hesitant to kind of answer something, it's because I'm starting to feel very convicted that I don't want to be someone who's giving spiritual advice yeah. or something like that. I'm in the process of getting myself a spiritual father so that I can so so that I can uh, make sure I keep myself on the straight and narrow. but but my understanding is that I could go to the to the priest I'm going to meet tomorrow, and he could he could sit down and he could trace his lineage all the way back directly to um, one of the apostles. Mm-hmm. And the orthodox position is that, the when when christ said at at the point where christ said to peter that you're peter and on this rock i'll build my church um he wasn't saying that it was going to be built on peter he said it's gonna be built on the apostles that all of them were there and he said it to all of them and so so that that that's my understanding of that specific issue but this is you know i'm coming from a, a a protestant tradition that's 160 years old and has like I used to think it was really rigorous because I went to like, I went to, to, to theological schools and stuff. And I was very well versed in, in, in Adventist uh, uh, eschatology and, and everything. And like I said to, I said to my family the other day, um, I was like, this is kind of like you show up in college. I remember when I got to college the first time in my, my very first semester, I was, I was pre PT. My very first semester, I uh, was taking pre-calc and A and P at the same time. And I'd been, I'd been off of out of school for a year and a half or two years. And so coming back into it, I was just like, oh, I was like drinking out of a fire hose. I could barely keep mm-hmm. up. And by the time I got to, I ended up, I wound up in accounting. And so by the time I was in my, my fifth year in accounting, never finished my degree. But by the time I was in my fifth year taking 400 level accounting classes, I was like, oh, for the days of, of pre-calc, it would have been so easy to go back to that. For me, it's kind of like, like, like Adventism was a one one class in college and now studying either of the apostolic traditions, really, like I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I have a much more respect now for, for Catholicism, but, but either of the, either of the apostolic traditions, it's like, it's like, I'm, I'm in, I'm in a PhD course now. It's, it's, yeah. they're, they're not even the depth and the complexity of the, of the, of the philosophy and the theology is, is, is absolutely mind blowing.
0: Yeah. It's, it really, it really, uh, I've always said that like when, when you go to a Protestant and I think this is, I think this is uniformly true. Um, when you go to a Protestant seminary, you take a class called ethics. If you go to a, if you go to an apostolic seminary or I don't know how, I don't know how, a how Orthodox priests are educated, but at a Catholic seminary, you take what's called moral theology. It's like, it's like a, it's like like, the difference between right and wrong. Sure. But like, here's why, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, John Paul II wrote entire, like entire tomes on, on sex and sexuality and, uh, and that sort of thing. So it wasn't just reactionary like it is in evangelical churches. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's well thought out and appeals to nature and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, which I, you know, I'm I, I'm hesitant to go down those routes at this point in my life, uh, for perhaps obvious reasons. But uh, like I I I admire it and I understand the beauty and in, in this sort of holistic uh, view, like it's almost like a it's almost like an anthropology, not just a yeah. do's and don'ts.
1: Oh yeah, it's it's very much a um, one of the one of the biggest influences on me so far, even though I. Oh yeah, I'll just say one of my biggest influences so far has been Jay Dyer. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but What's he's a uh, he's a he's got a, a massive YouTube, not massive in terms of following necessarily, but in terms of the content that he produces, a YouTube channel. Um, he actually hosts on Infowars occasionally. He's a uh, he's Orthodox. He I think he grew up evangelical, then was reformed in college, and then was Catholic in his twenties. And he's now, I think he's now probably 35, 40. And he's 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 orthodox now. And he's one of the he's one of the smartest people I've ever I've ever heard. He does debates. He's debated Adam Kokesh, he's deba- debated Stefan Molyneux. Oh. Um he's debated a bunch of different people. And he's his he's very um gruff. He's not a necessarily super friendly. And that's kind of the thing that I like. Sometimes I'm kind of like, uh, you know, it, it gets it gets uncomfortable listening to him sometimes mm-hmm. just because um you know, I, I, I'm like, well, you don't necessarily have to be that harsh, but at the same time, it's it, for him that his motivation is that he is, he is relentlessly in pursuit of the truth and it pisses him off when people are using bad argumentation and yeah. especially if people are arguing for bad faith. Um, but his, his ability to, to debate is, um, is just is, is absolutely next level and his, his rigor and his reading and his reading of the church fathers and his application of, um, uh, from from metaphysics to epistemology to ontology, the the whole thing i I've been been fully persuaded that, like the church fathers were masterful philosophers and theologians. These weren't just like Christian guys who were writing about the bible. they were they were dealing with issues of reality on the most fundamental levels. Mm-hmm. and And Christianity is a uh, it is not just like something that you just kind of intellectually like give a cent to and you're just kind of like, oh yeah, I believe those things and Jesus is cool and all that. And I'm going to be a good person. It's a, it's a completely holistic worldview that I'm, I've become convinced from a, from like a rational, logical basis is the most comprehensive explanation of reality that I've, that I've ever encountered. And I never Mm -hmm. got that sense ever from any sort of Protestant denomination that I was ever associated with.
0: Or frankly, from libertarianism.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To bring it back around. Cause that was, that was where I began. I began realizing some of the latent assumptions in libertarianism that I'd never even considered being there related to nominalism, materialism, rationalism, empiricism, all these different isms that are all just sort of assumed by libertarianism. And this is where, again, you get this, this, this trail of ideas. If someone is building on ideas of someone before them, there are, there there's a degree to which they're latently assuming the worldview of the person on whose ideas they're building. And so you can't, to truly understand an idea, you have to understand its history. You can't separate an idea from its history. And, and then, again, like I said, the mysticism was what, what interested me most. Someone introduced me recently. I oh got, um, it was uh, uh, Nicholas Blanchard, Chief Seats on Twitter. He introduced me to the term egregore. And that term, it's an occult term, for, for, for someone who doesn't know, it's, a, it's basically the idea that, uh, well, let me, let me make sure I get the exact definition of it so I don't say something stupid. Sure. Um,
0: I've looked it up every I, time you've used it and I still don't understand it. So hopefully we can dig a little bit deeper into it. Because
1: I can, I can see it, I can think it, but I can't necessarily explain it precisely. So what it is, is it's an occult concept representing a distinct non-physical entity that arises from a collective group of people. So think of Jung Saying that people don't have ideas, ideas have people.
0: Okay, yeah. Adam Patrick and I were just talking about this. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Now, now, just just to tie one other thing in, think about being
1: indwelled by the Holy Spirit, or being part of the body of Christ within that concept,
0: or uh, think about being part of one of these social justice movements, and mm-hmm. and and. In the context of of that of that concept, it's and this was I think I might have actually DM'd you about this or made you part of a group chat or something like that. But what's weird is that you know these the 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 ideal the ideological or political positions that people hold don't seem to go together all the time. So like you know opposition to nuclear power and pro-choice abortion positions and you know, uh, pronouns in your, in your Twitter bio don't really go together. Like those aren't, those aren't similar things, but they are, they, they fall all, uh, they all fall under the same ideology. So would that be something like an egregore? I I don't. Potentially,
1: I I guess, so maybe what I'd say is, is something like people will use the term, Once you start seeing this stuff, you start hearing it everywhere, and you realize that we have baked into our language. People will talk about the spirit of the age. This is like the the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist. Yeah, yeah. We think of that as just kind of like, oh yeah, it's kind of like the like. How how might you kind of you might say? Well, it's like the animating spirit of the age. Like, listen to the words that we're saying. It's an animating spirit. Yeah. So there's there's something that connects a group of people. And like you said, these all these disparate things that don't seem to have anything in common, but for whatever reason, they get cohered into a specific ideology, a specific movement. And then we talk about like a body of people. And Nassim Taleb has has spoken on this where he's talked about how groups of people act as individual entities that have different characteristics at different scales. So one person has like their own, their their consciousness, two people if you put them together in one, in one space, there almost becomes an entity of the two people in their shared consciousness. If you put 10 people in a room, if you have 10 people in a room and they're all united on a specific idea, you can feel that idea in the air. Mm-hmm. You, can, you, can, you can feel that connection between people. Maybe you could call it meaning. I don't know. But at different scales, different people act as different entities. And we're like, we understand this in terms of like, if you get a mob of people, the individual members of that group will act differently. So the, the whole mob itself will not behave in the sense that if you took each individual person and you added the character or the personality of that person, you added them all up, summed them up into a group of people, it, it, will, it will behave as an entirely different entity altogether.
0: Right. Yeah, that... So I want to get back to Egregor's, but that reminds me of something you said. I don't remember if you said it on Buck's podcast or um, just in passing when we were down at his place uh, outside Austin, but you said something like the ortho- orthodoxy doesn't have the concept of the individual. Is that right? Something like that anyway? Sim- maybe similar. Yeah.
1: Um, that's something that I'm actually, that's, that's an area of, of particular interest to me in trying to really understand and parse that out. And I actually think I'm going to try to Jay Dyer just followed me on Twitter, so I'm going to try to reach out to him and yes. see if uh, if he'll come on and 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 kind of delve into that specific thing. But what they don't have, they don't have the at least the idea, the the conception of the individual that libertarians do. They think, they would think of individuals would be seen in a very different sense.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you, the atomized human self it doesn't exist. There is no just like atomized human self divorced from all context and divorced from in the influence of other people. And this is something that wouldn't even be restricted to, to, uh, to uh, orthodoxy. Uh, I think it was Heidegger who has this concept of thrownness that you're like, you're just you're, you're, you're thrown into the world. You're thrown into a, an existing context. And you're born, you're not born as an individual. You're born as a son or a brother. Mm-hmm. Or an uncle in a weird case, maybe, or even a grandfather or something like that. You know, you, like you were born into a network of relationships, and those relationships de- define who you are. Before you're even self aware of your own identity, you've already been imprinted upon by your family, your community, your society. Before you're even aware enough of yourself to be able to determine who you want to be, you're already operating from a you already are not yourself. You've already been created by other people, by the people who are around you, and and also and this is that's how it's going to be your entire life. You're always going to be defined by your relationships to other people. In fact, identity doesn't even this is this is an LB thing. Identity doesn't exist in a vacuum. You don't when you identify yourself. Yeah. It's interesting because you say I'm the I'm. This my identity is the thing that sets me art, apart from other things. This is what differentiates me and makes me unique and special. But the way that you define it is by finding other people to compare yourself to. So your identity is the thing that sets you apart, but it's also the thing that makes you uh, makes you apart. Um, so within that context, then orthodoxy would not see, to, uh, to my understanding so far, but orthodoxy would not see individuals in the way that the libertarian does. This uh, the concept of of self ownership and um, the, the, these these abstract notions of the the idealized self don't exist within Orthodoxy. You are a you are born you you're you're created as a son of God. You are you're created to be a son of God, and that that um, identity is made available to you. You can reject it. You can you can ultimately choose to to adopt a different identity, but even then that identity is not going to be something that you created for yourself. It's going to be something that was ultimately um, placed upon you.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, and I guess that's, that, that, that explains then one of the questions that I actually had written down was, uh, you know, w- what's wrong with self-ownership as a concept? And, and that, that really kind of is what it is. Like, And it's not, it's not so much that, like, self-ownership per se is, is wrong. It's, it's that whole idea of yourself as property or as something to be owned in the first place. You're, you're not an, you're not a, you're not an object. You're a, you're, you're, you're a subject like you're the, yes. And hell that's that, maybe that's why you're, maybe that's why you're king pilled. I mean, if you're, you're a subject of the king.
1: Then exactly. <laughs> exactly. You're a subject of the king. Yes. Huh. You're this, this actually, you could go back a couple hundred years and this sort of thing would make a lot more sense. So this was actually one of the to be controversial, this was one of the arguments against slavery, that the slaves were a category of society that that had a particular identity where if you freed them, in many cases, you could make their life worse because now they have no one to vouch for them. And based on the the the, the culture that they were within without having someone else to vouch for them, they wouldn't be able to own property. They wouldn't be able, basically they wouldn't be able to support themselves. They wouldn't be able to sustain themselves apart from like scrapping and just trying to like carve out a bare existence for themselves. The way that human beings have arranged themselves for the vast majority of human history is that you are a a member of your family. You bear the name of your family and, and you trade against the identity of your family. Families can get, large enough and powerful enough that they become like a royal family or a family or an aristocratic family that has um, some sort of power and influence. But ultimately you were identified by, the, the, the reason that you didn't behave in untoward ways was because it would reflect poorly on your family. And ultimately, if you were in trouble, it was your family that was gonna come bail you out of that trouble. And to, to be cut off from your family was, a, was, was nigh unto death. If you're cut off from your family and someone else doesn't accept you into their family, then you don't have a way of operating within the society because the society was structured in such a way that 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 um like you, they wouldn't trust you as an isolated person. I don't know anything about you. How do how do I know that you're going to be that you're someone I can trust or that you're going to be good for for um for this transaction that you're gonna you're gonna abide by the rules or what, you know that, any anything like that. So the idea, if you think of this in terms of being a child of God, being bought with a price. We were once slaves. We were were a part of a different family. We had been pulled into this other family and we were representatives of that family. And the the benefits that you get of being part of that family are very good in the short term and very, very bad in the long term. Then someone paid a price for us and gave us the opportunity to be a part of a different family. And as a part of that family, we we, we are given the identity of a son of the head of that family, which means we, can, we bear his image. He vouches for us. Ultimately, he stands to protect us and care for us and provide for us. And you can reject that offering, but you can't be an atomized person. If you reject mm-hmm. that offering, you're going to be taken back into another family because ultimately the forces that are at work, to get back to the egregore thing, the forces that are at work within this world, operate at a level above our awareness and comprehension. And ultimately we are, we are used as pawns by forces beyond our comprehension, the, the powers and principalities, which actually I learned powers and principalities is not just a figure of speech. It's actually a reference to a specific category of angel or a specific category of divine being. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's an actual, it's a technical term. Powers and principalities are like uh, are like a title or a role of a, uh, a category of divine being.
0: Yeah. Thomas Aquinas has like the whole hierarchy of angels among mm-hmm. whom you know, the archangels, I think are at the top and then there's angels and angel. The only angel just means messenger. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just another, that's just another it's sort a, of rank in the hierarchy. It's exactly.
1: That, it's a subcategory. Yeah.
0: Right. So my conceptualization of history is kind of strange. And I, 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 maybe it's not strange, but, so like there's obviously the linear timeline like one thing happened then another thing happened and then another thing happened and these are the people who did them but then when you look a little bit deeper you've got like cycles which Vinermani has done his work on and then you've got what seems like pendulums going back and forth mm-hmm. and two of the pendulums that i've noticed are so there's the the materialist and mystic or mystical. And it seems like we're, we're hardcore swinging into a mystical thing. That's, and that's why even the, the secularists are treating COVID like it's some mystical thing. And then you've also got individualist and on the other side of this pendulum swing, something like collectivist. Uh, I don't don't necessarily like, maybe it's communitarian or something like that. Mm. Do you think that rather than this is reality, this is truth, it's actually just more something like this is the current zeitgeist that we're entering? This being? This being we're moving away from uh, the individualism of the Enlightenment era and uh, the postmodern era and into something that's sort of post-postmodern, which just is going to be a little bit more communitarian. I mean... I don't, think it's a, I don't think it's a coincidence that so many libertarians who are historic, like a lot of people say that libertarianism is defined by individualism. But so many libertarians are realizing this, that we're not atomized, we're not islands, and that we exist within communities. Everything that you just said, I don't think that that would offend the sensibilities of most thinking libertarians but if you had said it 3 or 5 years ago it probably would have and then on the other hand you've got all these people who are obsessed with their individual lived experiences and their individual personal identities and that sort of thing but who also are animated by and and equally as obsessed with their group their their group identity and that sort of thing and I don't really know where they were five years ago. Maybe they were more focused on the group than the individual identity. I'm not sure. I guess I'd have to think about that. But, but um, in any case, uh, do you think that we're on sort in sort of this like threshold, this like liminal space between uh, like a hardcore individualism and a, and a more communitarian type zeitgeist?
1: Mm. I had a whole bunch of thoughts while you were saying that. Let me think about how to, how to get through these in the right order. So the first to address the libertarian actually no, no, first first I'll address the, the like the, the historical cycle thing. Um, so I think this, this is a, this is an area that i'm um, that i'm I'm very much wanting to focus on now, and it's an area where I don't have answers for it. I just have a bunch of questions, mm-hmm. and I want to talk to people who can help me try to answer those questions. I've had I've had this distinct sense. Part of this is probably from from growing up as a as a, uh, a participant in a belief system that's extremely apocalyptic in nature. Um, I've had this sense of like like I'm living in the end times. Jesus is going to return in my lifetime. I'm going to live through an era of persecution and martyrdom. I've had that just kind of like baked into me for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And um, I grew up a believing I was, even until very recently, I saw myself as a young earth creationist. You know, the world's only been around for six to 10,000 years. That's it, you know, more closer to 6,000 probably. And, and you know, the Bible is a literal record of history and all that sort of thing. And in going through the course of all this, I've been, I've been much more convinced of a lot of the historicity of the Bible. Um, I I've, I've felt, it's not that I was, wasn't convinced before. It's just, I I've, I've, I've felt reaffirmed in that sense. Yet at the same time, I can't, ignore things like a pattern like the like the younger dryas period 12,000 years ago 12, 13,000 years ago and then all of these patterns, like this this repeating pattern if you listen to someone like Randall Carlson talk he he details in very well how you can see this repeating pattern of global cataclysms going back on a regular basis every um you know every 6 12 25 50,000 years, it's almost like there's this, there's, there's these like solar cycles that are cosmic cycles that are associated with major impacts, major cataclysms, that sort of thing. And I can't ignore that. I'm like, well, if those, if that, if reality didn't exist prior to 10,000 10, years ago or something, then how does a pattern like that exist? How do you pick out a pattern like that from something that didn't exist? You know, so this is that's, I'm trying to break myself of this notion that. The, that we've been around for about 6,000, 10,000 years, and the world is about to come to an end. And, you know, that, that all this is going to happen in my lifetime. That's been like at, at a, a subconscious level that's been in there. And so now I'm like, if we've been here for however many tens or hundreds or, or hundreds of thousands, millions of years, who's to say we're not going to be here that much longer again? Prior mm-hmm. to getting into orthodoxy, I was very, I was starting to feel very compelled about Simulation theory, the idea that we live in in some type of a simulation that's, that's running for the purpose of solving for something specific, that we are here as subjects in a simulation that is directed toward trying to solve a problem or produce something. And so my theory was like, well, maybe that's what love is. Maybe love is the thing that we're, because you get all these different angles from Christianity, from, from um, hippies. Like everyone always kind of, kind of converges on love. And like, if you've, if you've ever done psychedelics, you'll get this sense where you're like, you know what love is. You can, you can see it, you can taste it, you can, you can sense it. You know what love is. That's the best way you can, you can describe it. And it's like, okay, well, what, what is, whatever that thing is, that must be what... All of this stuff is all trying to solve for producing or generating or concluding or something like that. This is where my mind was prior to getting into orthodoxy. So now I'm trying to, to, to reconcile those things. I'm trying to, you know, if we're if we're going to be here for, if this isn't the end of the world, you know, if there isn't going to be a comet that hits in 10 years and wipes us all out, if we're going to have to survive through all of this and have, and produce children and, 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 and have generations after us, then we need to be acting like that's the case now. And there's a lot within libertarianism that seems to have a very apocalyptic sense toward it. People are seriously throwing around the words martyr and talking about like martyrdom. Yeah. And... And it's kind of, and there's kind of like this sense that it's like, well, you know, the state is so bad that what we need to do is we need to just rally up this, get this really big force and throw them at it, cast ourselves against the gates, and hopefully it's enough and we can break it apart, and you know, then we'll all live happily in utopia or something like that. And there's, 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 I'm not saying that that's how all libertarians are, but I'm saying that this is almost like a, like a spirit or a sense that's building in people. So, in terms of of, of historical cycles and are we coming back or forth or whatever, like that's kind of where my mind is at. I don't necessarily have a have a a distinct answer for that in terms of what what I thought of while you're talking about was, was again, back to identity and identity is, is like I was saying, it's this funny thing where it both isolates you from a group, but also identifies you with the group. And I think this kind of gets at the heart of why individualism versus collectivism is a false dichotomy that it doesn't actually exist. Cause like, as you highlighted, the more people act like radical individualists, the more collective they get. The, all these people who are like emphasizing all the way down to the very nitty gritty of my um, uh, g- elaborate gender and sexuality and disability and race and all these things, people are like splitting it down and getting it narrow and narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower and narrow. And, and, and they're all acting more and more and more collectively. They're all congealing themselves more and more. So it's kind of like, it's like individualists, it's like individuals unite. And I, I, so I think the fact that, I, th- I think that's, that's what we're seeing here is, is kind of the trick of identity. And then for libertarianism specifically, I think where a lot of this really, how could I, how could I think about it this way? Is libertarianism, if someone talks about, well, is libertarianism individualist or collectivist or something like that? What are, when you refer to, li, to libertarianism, are you talking about something as a methodology or something as an end goal? Is libertarianism, when people are libertarians or they're acting as libertarians, are they attempting to embody a particular methodology that can be embodied at any point in time, no matter the situation? Or are they attempting to get to a certain point? Are they trying, are they engaged in a process to get to a point? Or are they embodying a universal methodology? And I think if the goal is to get to a certain point, then libertarianism can't be individualist. But if the goal is to embody a specific methodology, then it would be individualist. So again, I think here, you're, it's, it's kind of, um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, there's, there's a false dichotomy here, I think. Sure.
0: And what's kind of strange is if you go to like a libertarian party convention, they illustrate that because one of the slogans is, uh, a world set free in our lifetimes. Like that's the goal. It doesn't mean anything, but that's the goal. Mm -hmm. That's the end state. And so you're at this collectivist event and, and that's, or or at least this communitarian event. And that's their, that's their slogan. It's not, it's not like, uh, you know, (laughs) we're, we're going to not violate the nap tomorrow or something like that. It's, it's, it's this, it's this, this, uh, eschatology almost, Mm -hmm. Um, or maybe not even almost like it is, it's it's an eschatology. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I'm going to, I'm going to be a delegate to the LP convention next year. It's going to be my, my last hurrah as part of the LP. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I know I've I've evolved so much since the last time we talked and like, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to just kind of troll the group by getting up and saying like proposing a bylaw. That's like, you know, this is, this is our, this is our goal. And the LP is hereby dissolved once we, once we reach it. Mm -hmm. And the thing is like, there's no way anybody would go for that. Mm -mm. Maybe some of the Mises caucus guys would, but like, you know, I mean, your, your normal libertarian and even most of the Mises caucus people are, they're not looking for a specific goal. They're looking for an eschatology. Yeah. And they're, they're pretending that, that they're, that they're trying to live this non-aggression principle lifestyle. And, uh, you know, I mean, certainly they believe it and they, they probably do live according to the NAP. But the reason that they call themselves a libertarian and not just, you know, a nice guy, uh, is because they have this, this, this eschatology, this, (laughs) this pseudo religion that, Ugh, I don't. I don't like where I'm. I don't like where I'm going right now. So I'm, I'm, I'm,
1: I, <laughs> I think. I think ultimately, I, I I put those two different options. Like, are you is libertarianism a methodology that you can just embody um, indefinitely, or is libertarianism a movement toward a specific goal? And I think that most libertarians want it to be both. They want to say libertarianism is a methodology that's going to take us to this end goal, but it's not. It, no, it, it, yeah.
0: Acting as a libertarian will not create a libertarian society, and that is what Andrew's big contribution has been. He's mm-hmm. shown that. He's shown why, and he's shown how. You know, like if if you want this, if you want this end goal, here's your methodology. Mm-hmm. You're not going to like it, but the, <laughs> this is what you've got to do. Or you can keep living your your methodology and not winning, which is also perfectly fine. Like, do it if you want. Mm-hmm. But you know, at that point, just. Just become an agorist and, and don't worry about all this stuff that you're wasting time on. Right. Become, become an actual
1: agorist. Not one of these people that calls themselves an agorist, but just is basically like, well, that way I can be involved and do all this exact same stuff, but not be held responsible for any of it. Yeah. Because that's yeah. what a lot, of, a lot of agorism is. A lot of the people that call themselves agorists are people who want to wash their hands of everything but still be able to do exactly what they've been doing and be a commentator and basically mm. just say, well, everybody else is wrong except for me, but I'm not responsible for it.
0: Yeah, and that's where I was at a year ago. I mean, that's why this show originally was called Urban Agorist. I, I was there. In fact, I was, I was so there that Vin Armani noticed it and wrote a kind of passive-aggressive article about it. Huh. Like his, his newsletter at CounterMarkets, he wrote an article about me right after I interviewed him uh, talking about how I was, quote, arm, armchair agorist, and, you know, I took, I took exception to that. I didn't like it, but I changed the name no of my wonder. podcast. I changed, changed the name of my podcast because of it. I mean, mm. you know, it's <laughs> because it was true. I mean, you're absolutely right. I think that's, that's kind of where you and Jason bridge the gap too. I mean, you can, you can care about the, you can care about what's going on and also find a good solution within your own life without needing to get so involved in it that you're Sacrificing yourself and your own, like what, whatever you do have influence over in order to be part of this big thing that's probably going to fail anyway. Mm hmm. It's, it's, there's
1: this idea, this, you can see the light in egalitarianism in, in libertarians here, where the, there's this notion kind of that politics is either something that you should be involved in or you shouldn't be involved in, and that this is a, a universal yeah. should or shouldn't for every single person. Yeah. And, and I, I don't buy that. I think that someone said to me the other day that good people choosing not to get in politics is accepting that they're going to be ruled by evil men. And I was like, okay, that's because rulership is going to be inevitable. There's going to be someone who's in a position of rulership. Anarchists want to say, uh, well, we believe in rules, but no rulers. You don't know how rules work then
0: because <laughs> there's no such thing as rules
1: without rulers. This is, is, this is you're, they're, they're making the exact same um, fundamental mistake as communists do. That like, oh, we could just set up the system that can run without people being in charge. Just, perhaps there's some sort of technology where all the Bitcoin people will come out. Perhaps there's some kind of technology where that could ultimately be possible. But even then, that technology is still going to be applied by human beings. It's still going to be an arrangement of human beings and human beings are fundamentally hierarchical. So it's inevitable that you're going to have rulers. So then to say that good people should never be involved in politics is to say that only bad people should be rulers. And I don't know how, to, I don't know how to, to say, I don't know how to endorse that. I think that there definitely should be people getting involved in politics. This is why I like what Andrew and, and Pete and, and Buck are working on mm-hmm. with the, with the um, uh, Mises GOP and the anti-tax and all this stuff, because I believe that there are people who need to be involved in politics at the local level. Because... Ultimately, you cannot adequately protect your communities if you don't have any influence over the governance. Mm-hmm. And if you think that you're going to influence the governance just by being like, oh, well, you know, uh, we're going to talk to all of our neighbors and get them to vote right or something like that. Yeah. Like you're, that's, that's you're, 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 the entire predicate of the of the libertarian notion is that democracy is bullshit and that it never works out. Like that's, that, so, but now you're going to say, well, we're just going to depend on democracy to try to solve the problems of democracy. It's not going to happen. You're going to have to have people who are in positions of leadership. And there's no reason to treat the state as somehow fundamentally different from any other institution when it comes to being in a position of leadership and adopting responsibility. Ultimately, one of, the, one of the big kind of red-pilling ideas for me was when, I don't remember if somebody posed this question to me or if I just posed it to myself, but I was like, if I had to choose between good government and bad government, which would I prefer? Would I say that those are equal? I'm saying all government is bad, well, clearly some forms of government are worse than others, like obviously. So if one form of government is worse than another form of government, then I can't just say, well, government is just bad, period. Mm -hmm. I can say government violates these moral principles or these ethical principles. Sure, okay, but it exists. So would I rather it be good or bad? To say, well, neither, I don't care. It doesn't matter, it's all the same to me. Of course not, of course not. Would you rather have Ron DeSantis or Andrew Gillum as the governor of Florida? How many more people would be dead and how much worse off would Florida and the rest of the United States be if Andrew Gillum had gotten 30,000 extra votes in Florida? It would fundamentally have completely changed the course of history. Yeah. And that's, I, I can't, I, I'm not advocating for it. I'm describing it. It just is something that I, I, can't, I can't deny that. So ultimately, yeah, if somebody's going to be involved in politics, they have to be someone who's, who's, who's ready for a role of leadership.
0: DeSantis is a blood-soaked monster. Don't you know this? <laughs> <Right>.
1: <laughs> Someone's going to reply with a picture of him uh, <laughs> with the yarmulke on at the, at the whaling wall. <laughs> oh my God. I had a, a, a tweet that has been just, I, I tweeted this the other day. It occurred to me while I was out walking my dog at midnight. And it just keeps coming back to me. This thought keeps coming back to me. I had said originally, I said individualism is a psyop. And... And I, I just tweeted it and just left it. And if somebody had like said, well, prove it, I would have been like, no, you know, like I don't <laughs> necessarily have a, 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 a fully worked out argument for why it's the case. I just know that mm-hmm. it is. I can, I can, I, I'm recognizing that it is. And then it well, came to me. And yeah, go ahead.
0: How did so it come to you?
1: The reply I, I put up a couple of days later, I said, an individual's responsibility is to his community. A community's responsibility is to its individuals. Communities must protect individuals. Individuals must protect communities. And that, to try to reduce it down to just individuals or just communities is missing the point. The fact of the matter is individuals exist and communities exist. And it's the responsibility of the community working together as a collective to protect its individuals. And it's the responsibility of each individual to protect the community. Both of those things have to exist in, in, in accordance with one another.
0: Yeah, that's the, that's the reasonable and well-thought-out answer. My, my, knee-jerk, my knee-jerk reaction was if individualism wasn't a PSYOP, it would no longer exist.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean,
0: it would have gone the way of the Tea Party at Occupy Wall Street. PSYOPs come as a reaction to something that actually has the potential to bring down the system. I mean, Occupy Wall Street was gaining traction. And mm-hmm. so the corporate executives had to convince everybody that no, 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 no. It's not us that's evil. It's those racists that are evil. <laughs> yeah. And and uh and, and the Tea Party, you know, once the, the second they gain power in Congress, uh, well, I mean, there's how many how many of them are still holding to the values that they ran on? Like three? And Justin Amash is no longer in Congress, so now it's down to like two. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's the the perpetrators of psyops know what they're doing. The mm-hmm. deep state and the cathedral, for lack of a better term, I guess, uh, are not dumb people. And certainly the people who are above them aren't dumb. That's how they got above them,
1: <laughs> you know? This is where, I'll, I'll give another, another plug for Jay Dyer because his, uh, this is where he really got started with a lot of this stuff. He wrote a couple of books called uh, Esoteric Hollywood where he um, really traced back all of the, you know, NGOs, Freemasons, all these different uh, CIA, all these different things, and, and, and connected them all together. I haven't read the books yet. They're on our, in fact, as part of the Supporting Listeners Group with Kingfield, we're doing a book club. And uh, that's, I think Eastern Terror Hollywood's going to be one of the next books that we do. Oh, cool. Um, along with uh, Bronze Age Mindset and um, what was the third one?
0: I don't, I just uh, I don't looked at it the other day, but I don't remember.
1: Yeah. Um, so the, uh, what was I saying? Oh, Jay Dyer. So he has, he's got just just hours and hours and hours of video detailing all of the, all of the major players. I'm talking like Kissinger level and above all of these major players, the things that they've said, the, the specific plans that they've laid out, the justifications they've given for them. They've talked about all this stuff publicly. He just did a stream the other day where he was talking about one of these it was a, a policy paper that was put out. It was talking about um, uh, military, the draft and military service. And they explicitly said, one of the goals with the military is to break people of their religious foundations, their religious underpinnings, so that you'll make them a permanent, permanent servants of the state. Mm-hmm. And, and if they're too stupid to figure out that that's what's happening, that, that they're being used as cannon fodder, the term cannon fodder is used over and over again. The, if they're too stupid to realize that they're being used as cannon fodder, they deserve to be used as cannon fodder. They're, they're, they're discussing this stuff explicitly. They, they, they talk about it openly. The World Economic Forum, with the whole hullabaloo about the Great Reset, they've detailed all these things. Just, just, they, they've, they've put them out there explicitly. Yeah. Agenda 201, with, I, mean, I probably shouldn't say some of these words. The, the, all of these things oh. in the lead up to, <laughs> to, uh, to, to the most recent big uh, global experience All of these plans were all laid out ahead of time. These are people who are operating above the level of government, and that was actually that was one of the things that um, when COVID came down, one of the first I I saw really early on that that was like this is going to be a serious thing. Whether the virus itself is serious, this is going to be a serious world changing thing. And for a long time, I was convinced that the virus itself was serious. A lot of people were because, and this was before anybody else was taking it seriously. Because all of the evidence and stuff coming out of China and India and like at that, or not India, but Italy, at that time, there was a ton of evidence that this is a really, really serious thing. Yeah. As time went on, it became clear that it wasn't, that, it, that there was all kinds of, of chickenery going on. But the, um, I, I, what I thought was, what if it was real? What if it was as bad as they said it was? What if there was a virus? Like, like just divorce yourself from this world and, and go into hypothetical land for a minute, which is where libertarians like to be. Um, <laughs> that was just a cheap shot. <laughs> um, was, it was but, good. <laughs> <laughs> but go into hypothetical land and imagine, what if there was a virus that, this, that was this severe and that was that transmissible and that, um, that, that, that deadly? How would How would, like, it would be right for the governments to say, we're locking you in your houses. We're, we're shutting down these transmission avenues. Mm-hmm. Like they would be saving millions of lives by doing that. So like this is, this is a very difficult moral dilemma. You can't just say, oh, well, it's my rights and you know, all that. Or perhaps you could. And this gets back to the question of which is more important, your rights or the consequences of your rights? Which is more important? Having a society that looks like liber- the, the, the libertarian society or acting today like you live in a libertarian society. Because those two things are not, they don't go hand in hand, and they're often directly in in conflict with one another. So that was one of the first things that really got me questioning libertarian dogma, I guess you'd say. And then also starting to understand, one of the most significant books I ever read was was The Brothers by Stephen Kenzer, talking about the Dulles brothers. And if you like really understand where the military industrial complex came from, how, the, how all these networks, the CIA and everything, how they got built out and how early on it happened and how much they infiltrated all of the major institutions really early on, you realize that this sort of thing is not just gonna get rooted out. You're not just gonna, these, these are the most, like, the most powerful decentralized networks that have ever existed. And they're, they've been set up in such a way that they don't necessarily depend on any one. So for example, the whole end the Fed thing, if you were to somehow gain the electoral traction to end the Fed, the people that set up the Fed in the first place would just use something else to accomplish their exact same goals. It just, the the people that are actually pulling the strings at this are, are at a level far above governments. The governments do their bidding. So if you're targeting the government as the source of the evil, you're a pawn you you are being psyoped if you think the government is the source of all of this evil the source of all of this evil is the people that own governments that 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 direct yeah. the governments uh-huh. and you're not going to you're not going to do something to those people by by having this big campaign where you go on the platforms that they own and try to preach some message that doesn't even touch them that's just it, it's just not going to happen that was th- that's when i i realized that there's this like you can either either keep acting according to this methodology that's not going to get you anywhere, or you can recognize the world that exists around you and begin acting as if that world is actually real.
0: Speaking of the Dulles brothers, did you know that John Foster Dulles' son is, or he's dead now, but was one of the most powerful Catholic cardinals in American history? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. it was, yeah, that was that. Was that. And
1: then his, um, uh, uh, their, the, the Dulles brothers, I want to say father and grandfather or uncle or great uncle were were like Christian ministers, Christian missionaries. Oh really? Yeah. And that's what that, that was what was really interesting to me as I realized that the the creation of what became the military industrial complex was motivated by Christian missionary spirit. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Same with Prohibition. All yes. all of the all of the progressive era programs that you know, we're still, we're still like the progressive era ended not because the progressive era ended. It was because progressivism became the default. Right. And all of that stuff, all of it started with this American Protestantism Mm -hmm. Um, and that like American Protestantism being a single entity unto itself, not, not Protestantism that happens to exist in America, which, you know, that's a, that's another, uh, kind of rabbit hole to go down but um, one of the 19th century popes and I don't remember which one it was it may have been leo he anyway, wrote a wrote an encyclical or a papal bull actually warning against the heresy of americanism there's a and that's that's why the that's why the catholic church was actually on the side of the confederacy in the civil war um, hmm. you know obviously they know didn't that. Like, they didn't like send soldiers over but yeah um, it, it wasn't because of slavery it was because Ameri- americanism was a, it, it was a separate Protestant denomination almost. And, you know, I mean, separating separating the union was seen as one way of defanging this mm. potential, <laughs> potentially and, you know, now we know actually kind of world soul, like collective soul-destroying ideology. That actually makes
1: sense because... Because Puritanism came out of Anglicanism. Mm-hmm. And obviously, obviously, Catholicism and Anglicanism have a, a, a thorny history. Yeah. So it would make sense then that as they're tracking this, they're like, okay, well, here's these apostates that have, that have, have um, set up this from their perspective, they set up this apostate church. Well, look at this. Even more radical apostates came out of that apostate church. And they went over and they, they've started this country over there. And now that country's taking off. And, um, and they've got all these sorts of, uh, all the, uh, um, Geographic uh, happenstance that happens to make them very powerful and very easy to defend and everything, and you could you could see that sort of thing coming. You could see that this is now a um, what I now understand to be a Christian heresy taking over an entire country and the whole Great Awakening and all of that. That was all happening in the United States. That wasn't mm-hmm. touching Europe in the same way that it was. That it was. That it was. I mean, that's where that's really where American Protestantism really took off was through. Uh, was, was through the, the whole Great Awakening throughout the the um, the whole eastern like eastern half of the country. That's yeah. very interesting. I never really connected those things before.
0: I wonder if Southern Baptist, if the Southern Baptist religion, which is you know heavily influenced by Calvinism, unlike other like the the Baptist denomination was a was a uh, was not a Calvinist denomination from what I understand, but Southern Baptists specifically are very influenced by Calvinism, and I wonder if that has something to do with Reconstruction, like just complete, completely changing the religious nature of the South. I'd have to look into that. That's, a, that's, a, that's pretty interesting, drawing this, that, that distinction between Northern Anglicans and the Southern, uh, well, I mean, I don't even know. I guess they were probably Methodists or something like that. And, you know, obviously there was probably Catholics in the South at the time as well.
1: It, well, it's interesting thinking about how the Scots were, the Scots were, were N-words, like in, in early American history. Yeah. So then they would have naturally found common cause with with the, with the South. So they would have naturally been inclined to move that direction. I've never traced any of this. I've never thought about this before. It just occurred to me just while you were saying that. So it would make sense that the Southern Baptists would ultimately be influenced. I don't know if there's a large Scottish population there but just seeing those two things, you are talking before about incentives. Well, those are incentives for these two people to, to have common cause and to, to influence each other.
0: Yeah, I think, the, I think the Dirty South is like all Scots-Irish. I mean, that's, that's kind of where they settled. It was like the Carolinas and stuff, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm correct. Hmm. You
1: know what's really interesting? interesting. A, a, a part of American history that I'd, I'd really never known anything about until I watched the movie or the, the TV show Outlander, which is a very interesting show, by the way. But they, uh, there, was a, there was a revolt, a tax revolt in the Carolinas just before the Revolutionary War. And it was largely Scots and Irish farmers revolting against the local aristocracy, the lo- like the landed gentry. Mm-hmm. They were revolting against them because of oppressive taxation. And they were put down. This was, this was where... George Washington was was uh, a part of that aristocracy. He was I don't know if he was necessarily involved in the uh, oppression so to speak, but it was he ran in the same circles. And that aristocracy put down this tax revolt and within a decade or so became the American the, the the revolutionaries.
0: Wow. Yeah. You don't think about it like that. You think of you think of these states as being cohesive communities, but they were just as divided as anybody else, any other any other hierarchical community, which is to say, every community. Yes,
1: this this is one of Moldbug's big uh, tough pills for people to swallow. Is he says that there's people talk about the three major revolutions, and they like to, especially Americans, like to talk about them as that the the, the um, Russian Revolution and French Revolution were the the um, rabid, deranged, leftist, uh, blood-soaked monsters, and then the Americans were the noble, patriot, um, conservative, you know, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And he said, no, they're all three of them were. And he has he he pretty extensively lays out a case that the American revolutionaries were. Well, number one, this is this I kind of was aware of this before. I was starting to become aware of this that uh, that the American revolutionaries were not necessarily these like libertarian ideologues they just wanted to it was motivated by the aristocracy first of all the revolution was motivated by the aristocracy because they wanted to have the power themselves locally not hmm. answering to britain so they they came up with a lot of fancy justifications for why they um w- w- you know all these noble appeals to god and country and everything like that And they, they probably uh believed them but they were motivated to believe them because it was very much in their own personal financial interests to become independent but he makes the case that not only were they uh motivated by their own personal gain but they were actually basically i think he calls them the equivalent of the uh the modern equivalent would be the people who run around afraid of black helicopters they they were like Kind of like deranged conspiracy theorists that had a perspective on the English crown and parliament that didn't actually correspond to reality. They were like, oh, they're trying to do all these things. They're going to kill us. They're going to destroy us. They're doing all these things. They had Mm -hmm. all these, they'd whipped themselves into a fervor over it. And there was, he has a, a, a number of different people that he refers to, original documents from that time, who were like, I don't know what these people are talking about, but like parliament has no will to try to enslave people and take away all their rights and all that kind of stuff. Like all the stuff that they're saying, a lot of it was just kind of like run-of-the-mill corruption and mm-hmm. um, and like, I guess, people's wires getting crossed and, and talking past each other. So it's interesting that, that the American ethos, which is really what informed American Protestantism, was, uh, at least according to Moldbug, born out of a um, kind of like a conspiracy theory run amok.
0: I really it was a bunch read, of radical leftists. <laughs> I really need to read uh, Unqualified Reservations. Actually, I think the only reason I know who you are is because I mentioned that I was reading Grey Mirror and really, like, really enjoying it. And uh, like, well, I don't agree with everything he says. Uh, the things that Curtis Yarvin writes are so, like, you, you can't read it and not at least think about it. Right, and for for me, I'm I'm kind of a dumb reader, so I have to read it a few times. But still, you know, I mean, it, it is thought provoking, if if nothing else. And so I mentioned that in in some, maybe a Facebook group or something like that, and someone was like, "Hey, you should watch Kingpilled. They're they're like they're like a, a video version of Menchus Moldbug." And I was like, "Oh, cool, okay. Uh, it must be called Kingpilled because Moldbug is a monarchist. <laughs> that's actually <laughs> that's
1: actually where it kind of came from to begin oh, really? with. Yeah." Um, I had told Stephen and I were talking. Um, he had just, where was it? Oh, he'd heard me talking about stuff on on um, wealth-powered influence, and it was kind of some of the things where I'd, I'd start getting into it, and Jason to be like, I don't want to talk about that anymore, and he changed the subject. Oh. And and Stephen was like, Well, I want to know more, and so he reached out to me. Just started he started pestering me until I responded to him, oh, and he was cool. like, well, Where are you getting all this stuff? Where where are you? And I was like, Well, here here's some videos. Go read this stuff. Watch this stuff. And it was mind blowing to him. There's two mm-hmm. channels where uh, Charlemagne and uh, uh, Anamnesis were the two major channels that talked about mold bug stuff. Um, Anamnesis has one of the best video series that I've ever seen on YouTube. I think it's, it's if you go to Anamnesis on, on YouTube, um, I actually I can find you a link cause you might not pull it up, but oh, uh, I, I've already got it. Okay. Yeah. He's, his mold bug series is absolutely phenomenal. He adds a lot of his own thoughts to it.
0: Sweet. I'll link to it as well. Just because I, I think that more people who, you know, in so far as I'm influencing people, I think that they need to be reading Yervin and yeah, uh, shame on me for never having read Moldbug. So I'm going to link to this playlist. It's kind of long, but uh, definitely, you
1: know, I would definitely recommend that people listen to it in order. And it's, it's yeah. a little long. There's, there's maybe a dozen videos, but the absolute best one, one of the best Political, philosophical things that I've ever consumed is his second to last one, Meditations on bug the Mystery Cult of Power. That Mystery Cult of Power one was just absolutely phenomenal. And he he actually very early on with with Kingpilled, he just out of nowhere DM'd me on Twitter, Anamnesis did, and said, Hey, I really love what you guys are doing. Um, you're, you've got a great show. I love all your thoughts. Um, if you ever need any help or you want anything, just reach out to me. I'm happy to work with you on anything. Um, and I was, I was like kind of starstruck because this is back cool. when we had, you would give like five live viewers and, and, yeah. you know, 80 views total. And, uh, he, he's a very good guy. Something has happened with him in his personal life and he just doesn't post or, or doesn't do anything anymore. I don't know what it is, but, um, but anyway, so, uh, that's how Steven and I started talking about these videos and stuff. And then he was like, you need to, you need to do a show. You need to talk about this kind of thing to more people need to hear this. And one of the last times we had that conversation before he finally twisted my arm enough to got get me to start doing the show um, he said something about how all of these. I think he's talking about the LPMC, and he was like, "If all these guys could just understand this stuff, like if we could just get these ideas into their heads, they would understand it." And I said, "Yeah, man, we need to come. We need to king pill these mofo's." <laughs> and he was like, "There you go. There's the name of the show." And I was like, "Well, it's actually kind of king pill. That's kind uh-huh. of cool. I'd I'd spent years trying to come up with if I ever did a show, what would I call it?" And um, and I tried all kinds of different stuff, and I could never come up with anything. And then I just kind of said something offhanded, and, and he was like, King Bill, there we go. There, there we go.
0: I like it. I wonder if... So we have mentioned animated... Or, sorry, animating spirits, and um, we've mentioned Jung, who had the anima and animus. I wonder if anamnesis comes from a similar root. That's a good question. It's interesting that these words that are very similar keep coming up, and that, that always piques my interest. It doesn't look like it.
1: It means... So the definition here is the remembering of things from a supposed previous existence, often used with reference to Platonic philosophy, and the Christian. Oh, interesting.
0: Yeah, it's a Eucharistic term as well. Part of the I, Eucharist I in which
1: the part of the Eucharist in which the Passion, Resurrection, and Ascension of Christ are recalled. Interesting. I'm sure that he did that for the double meaning.
0: Cool. Interesting. All right. I want to ask him. I know. <laughs> oh, and it's a it's a Plato thing as well, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, cool. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to pretend like I'm, or I don't want to not talk to the audience while I'm sitting <laughs> here reading Wikipedia. So, um, I'm going to link to that, uh, meditations on moldbug because I think people need to listen to it. And I certainly do. You tweeted, and I'm going to quote this tweet. I actually copied and pasted this one. The problem isn't the nap. The problem is with the, in parentheses, entirely materialistic definition of aggression. Mm. So what's the materialistic definition? definition of aggression what's wrong with it and what's a better one like different definition
1: so that's part of what like what i wanted to set out to solve when i was really trying to solve libertarian philosophy before i i got interested in other things i i started out the show being like okay we have a bunch of problems that we've identified that are not um, whether it's problems with libertarian theory or problems that libertarian theory doesn't solve And we don't know what the answers are. So we just want to start talking about this stuff and see if we can get people who are smarter than us to start weighing in and so we can try to solve some of this. And that was one of them. It was like, I want to to retain the nap. I don't think the problem is with the nap. I think the problem is with the way people are are, are conceptualizing aggression. Because if, if your definition of aggression only involves stuff related to like physical, your physical property rights or physical aggression against you or violence against you, and that's the only thing that you're concerned about, that's the only thing you're focused on, you're missing out on a major component, a major portion of human existence. Because not all, human beings are not physical beings. We have physical beings, but ultimately we're spiritual beings. And I think this is a, ultimately this is kind of a, from listening to Jay Dyer, I've been really convinced that this is a, just an innate, an unsolvable problem within the constraints of libertarian theory because libertarianism is ultimately um, materialist, rationalist, and uh, uh, nominalist and empiricist. All those things are all, um, if you abandon those aspects of libertarian theory, the rest of it has to go as well. I mean, this is kind of some of the ideas that like Adam Patrick was getting into when when, uh, he and I were talking about libertarianism being Christianity without Christ. It's kind of like you've taken just the material side of it, but you've ignored this other huge aspect. So for example, if there are people who are in your society using maybe it's advertising or social media algorithms or different phenomena like that, that are not per se violating the non-aggression principle, but they're still having a degenerative effect on your society. If people are creating technologies and, 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 and engaged in like shady marketing that's getting people addicted to technology that's really bad for them, really harmful for them,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or, um, you know, selling uh, seed oils as food or those kinds of things. Your, I guess seed oils is still a materialistic thing, but those sorts of things are not, are not covered under the nap. So that there's this idea that like, well, if everyone could act according to the nap, then everything would be all hunky-dory. But if those things are not covered under the umbrella of the nap, but those things are still have a major deleterious effect to society, perhaps even more than than actual physical violations of other people's property or um, explicit examples of fraud or blackmail or or extortion or those kinds of things, then if your goal is to create like a harmonious, peaceful society and you're not taking this stuff into consideration, then you're never going to get there.
0: And seed oil is materialist, but the high time preference that it incentivizes is not.
1: There you go. Yeah, right.
0: And and ultimately if
1: you're degenerating people's, you you cannot, I, I'm convinced of this, you cannot separate f- um, physical health and spiritual health with a human being. Sure. If you're in poor physical health, you're gonna be in poor spiritual health. And if you have poor spiritual health, you're gonna be, you're gonna have poor physical health. They're they're connected ultimately because we're we're not one or the other. We're both. And the and the two feed each other. They they're linked together.
0: Yeah. I mean, so this this is another one of those hard conversations. Like I don't want to. I don't want to think, you know, well, I don't want to think this is something that's universally bad. Like the trade-off of the high time preference that seed oil incentivizes and the arguably poor health that it causes. That also means, though, that lots of poor people are able to eat tastier food which is, I, I would say that's a good thing. I mean, you know, the difference between boiled chicken and chicken that's grilled in, a, in an oiled skillet is not negligible. So it does raise the quality of life, kinda, doesn't it? I don't know. Is
1: it? Is it, uh, like, is, is making poison tasty? Is, it, is that, <laughs> like, a positive aspect of it? I don't, um, I guess I, that would get, get back to... perhaps if you're judging things on a materialist level, because if your material experience is improved, then you might say, oh, well, this is a good thing if you, but you're ignoring what's happening under the water or under like under the surface.
0: Earlier, you mentioned that, you know, you used to, you used to think that Jesus, you know, were he alive today or whatever, he would be an ancap, um, or that the, 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 like the scriptural political ideology is anarcho-capitalism. Um, And my question at that point was like, okay, so what's wrong with anarcho-capitalism being like the layer one of, of this and then the spirituality aspect being the layer two, but that's not, that's not, that doesn't make sense. I mean, having, having talked, you know, for the last hour and a half, I think that that just doesn't make sense that you can't really separate the two. Like, Mm -mm. The, and or at the very least, you can't separate the two and still be a believer in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Correct. Or a right. follower of This is, of Christ, this is
1: a, uh, um, one one phrase that was coming to mind when we were talking about the nap just a second ago was necessary, but not sufficient. I guess that's mm-hmm. probably, that might be one way I would frame it. Sure. But what was the other thing? Oh, the Bible. One thing that, interesting conversation between uh, Adam Patrick and uh uh, Jacob at biblical anarchy. They they had a really interesting conversation. Recently. I know you, you listened to it and there, there got to a point where, where Adam was asking Jacob, Jacob was kind of like, well, well, Christianity is great for this stuff, but then, you know, not everybody's going to buy into it. And we have to have this thing that kind of is like, <laughs> yeah. we have to like dumb it down or water it down for people. And, and Adam asked him, I don't remember exactly. He said something kind of like, well, w- what about Christianity isn't good enough for you? And, and And this is I was having some conversations with people on Twitter recently, and kind of had a sort of a similar thing. people who 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 talk about themselves as Christians call themselves Christians. And I, I noticed them as a very distinct type now, having been exposed to orthodoxy and listened to and and Catholicism, too, really. the listening to the two um apostolic traditions, I- interacting with each other and and viewing the way that they view the world, the depth with which they view the world compared to, virtually every protestant i've ever seen they i I now notice this that there's a there's the distinct aspect of protestantism that is uh that reduces religion to a part of your life even the people that are like extremely devout Mm. and they're like well this is all you know they they they're um they're engaged in all of the requisite practices praying you know doing their devotions every morning going to church going to vespers all these different things even still for them. They still think of religion as a a set of beliefs that you have, or really more accurately, a set of thoughts that you think that are this part of your life. And then you have the rest of your life as well. And so the goal is to try to make sure that this part makes the rest of it better. And being exposed to that, like that's how that's been my MO for virtually my entire life. And and being exposed to that now, I, I immediately see it in other people. Um, but to to your question about about uh, uh, anarcho capitalism with the Bible, it, yeah, it's this is the the predicates upon which anarcho capitalism were built are ultimately fundamentally atheist. The the people who who conceptualized of the Bible or conceptualized of of, of the, the of the ideas upon which anarcho capitalism was built or, or out of which it developed. Mm-hmm were ultimately people who were relating to these ideas in this same way, where they're taking, they're like, okay, yeah, Bible, God, all that. Okay, great. What do we do about all this stuff where that stuff doesn't apply? They, they, they had that same approach. Um, or they were just explicitly atheist altogether. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think, again, this, this gets at this methodology versus outcome uh, dichotomy. Because I think that all of these people, someone like, like Jacob, I think that he means very well. I think he's very sincere. And I think he honestly, um, I mean, I, I remember believing the same thing. I remember having this, like, finding all these proof texts in the Bible and see here, look, this is why anarchy. You know, this is why Jesus would have been an ANCAP, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, First Samuel 8, Romans 13, like, oh, don't talk about Romans 13, but First Samuel 8, you know, <laughs> th- that, I, I understand the spirit of where that's coming from. But but ultimately, I'm beginning to recognize that there's a lot of, of um, inadvertent self deception happening. I think with people that are that that have that idea, and they're and they're doing a Mott and Bailey thing where they're like um, a libertarian society would be would look like a Christian society. The, the way they're conceptualized, the libertarian society where it's all peaceful and harmonious and voluntary, that would look like a Christian society that's all peaceful and harmonious and voluntary ergo we must act like libertarians and and that that doesn't follow that's a non sequitur
0: right (sighs) um before we started well we were recording but before i like introduced the show and everything uh we were talking about jordan peterson and i wanted to so we both have and i think also vin armani and we might have we might have it might have it might have actually been him who said this uh noticed that Jordan Peterson was sort of a John the Baptist figure, sort of the voice calling out in the wilderness, at least back in, you know, 2017 or whatever it was. Uh, You, and you said, you said, it looks like, you know, it's even to the point now where he's going to be proverbially decapitated. What, uh, what's he, what's your criticism of him now? Why do you think he's on his way to downfall?
1: it It pains me. it's It's hard for me because I yeah. he, he was a major, major influence on me. Amy and I went and saw him when he was in Seattle, and it was it was phenomenal. We actually, no fun fact, we were sitting there watching him, and Amy suddenly elbowed me and pointed right in front of us. And maybe two or three rows in front of us, just eight feet away from me, was Pete Carroll, the coach of the Seahawks. and oh, yeah. uh, And I'm a massive massive Seahawks fan or, at least I, I have been in the past. I was at the point. And, uh, so that was, that was very, very cool seeing him there. But, um, so we went up, we did the whole VIP meet and greet. We went had our picture taken yeah. with him and everything. And he was very, very sincere, very kind man in person. He, he had a line of hundreds of people and he mm-hmm. stopped and focused and had a conversation with each person that came up. Um, so I think he's, a, I think he's a very beautiful man. And I, I have been, profoundly impacted by him. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have gone on this journey that I've gone on so far if it wasn't for him. Yeah. So it pains same, me to same. see, yeah, yeah, it pains me to see what's happening with him. But um, the, I didn't get the John the Baptist thing. I wasn't an original thought for me. I think the first place I heard that was actually from Cyprian. Yep. Cyprian and, and uh, Isaac Morehouse had a okay, really yeah, interesting that's where conversation. That's where I heard it too. Yeah. Um, and that's easy. It's on Isaac Morehouse's channel. He doesn't have that many videos. So that should be easy to find for someone that wants to. But uh, he's, so he's he was the man, he was the voice crying out in the wilderness and pointing people toward the truth. There's, there's you and I, there's hundreds thousands probably, I maybe mean, even millions of people who have returned to church, who got their act together, who have, who have had, a, their life has improved in a positive direction because of what he has done and said. And but apparently so there's there's a story he's told before about how he actually had a presence appear to him a voice a light something like that that came to him and basically gave him a call like a like an apostolic call and he rejected it and said like no it's not for me it's not the right time something like that he turned it down and all of his shit hitting the fan all happened right after that and hmm. now you you watch the man and he's clearly extremely tormented. You watch his videos, you watch him reasoning through this stuff, especially watch his conversations with Jonathan Pajot. He's clearly agonizing over all of this, and he does not want to give in. He's wrestling with it. and I still I, 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 I pray my heart out for him that he eventually does follow where God is leading him, that he actually does answer the call, but, you know, it just watching the way that he handled the whole vaccination thing was kind of telling. You know, he, he, uh, <laughs> it's, he should be able to see very clearly what's going on here, but he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to recognize what's happening because I, I think, frankly, he couldn't cope with, number one, his beloved institutions. He couldn't cope with acknowledging or accepting that they are corrupt to the core because ultimately he's an academic. He's an he's a, he's a academic through and through. And one of the first people that I ever heard really put, him, put his feet to the fire on this was Milo Yiannopoulos. He went on his show a couple of years back and he said, he said the, the real big difference between us is you want to save the institutions. I want to burn them to the ground. And then Milo said, he added to it and he said, you want to save the institutions because you want a position of esteem within them. And I thought that was, that was a very insightful point at the, wow. at the time. This was, this was before Jordan had his whole meltdown and everything. This was probably 2018 maybe. Um, but he, now I just saw today he just announced his new tour that he's going on and he's partnered with Ticketmaster, and guarantee every single one of his his events is all going to have vaccinations required. It's all going to be, you know, he's it. It seems like he's deliberately blinding himself to what's going on. And I'm not necessarily saying that he need, that he should be martyring himself or or dying on these hills, but he he made a lot of money off of people by pointing them toward the truth, by, by, by treating himself as a truth seeker. He's put himself in a position of significant influence. And now it doesn't seem like he's truly living up to that. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't, I don't want to take that. I, I don't want that to be like a critique of him personally, because I don't think, I don't think that this is like, oh, some easy thing he could just do. And it's just like, why couldn't you just do the super simple, easy thing? He's so stupid. It's not that. It's he, it's a, it's a difficult thing, but some people are called to do very difficult things. And if they don't answer that call, if they fall short, they're still falling short. They're still missing the mark. And so, and that's what I see. That's where, Also, you can look at his daughter and that, uh, the, the behavior and the, and the, the public image and the stuff that, that his daughter has done are a lot of people won't agree with this, but I think that it, it kind of reflects, you can tell a lot of people, you can tell a lot about people by the behavior of their children, Mm -hmm. um, it's just an inevitable fact about humanity that ultimately parents hold themselves responsible for what their children do. And ultimately, you know, you, you are held responsible for what your children do to a degree. And, uh, his daughter has had some, some, uh, just stuff that, that indicates to me that, that she could use some stronger masculine leadership in her life. I'll just say that. Sure. <laughs>
0: how how very conservative of you
1: (laughs) right yeah (laughs) look at me the the old Christian conservative
0: (laughs) (laughs) and to put a little finer point on it I mean she's she's just she's not ladylike I mean Mm -hmm. to use kind of an outdated term I mean that's what it is she she kind of dresses slaggy and you know talks about pretty personal personal I mean it's it's okay to talk about personal things but like I don't know you just kind of have to watch her
1: is she is, is like posting thing. pictures of yourself in lingerie with your daughter in the background on Instagram yeah. is kind of just, and just, then it's just weird. Yeah. And then the, the whole, yeah. she, Yeah. I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to fall into just like gossiping, but yeah, yeah it just, it, it it's relevant to him and, and to, to, you know, you can see that, um, it just, it just kind of adds to the picture, I suppose that he's a, um, um, he's, he's a troubled man that's, that's, that's dealing with a lot of stuff. And, um, I think that I'm glad that Jonathan Pajot is really close to him because I think that that's a really important, uh, uh, person to be connected to him. And it's interesting because his wife has had a major spiritual awakening. His wife is like, a, a, um, I don't know what church she's joined, but last I heard, she's like regularly attending church and has a very, had, had a very spiritual awakening and he's, wow. and he's resisting it. Um, so yeah.
0: Interesting. So this is kind of an awkward transition, I guess, but you, and you know, a a lot of people are saying this, Adam Patrick has said it as well. You hold that the enlightenment was a mistake and I think you've made a pretty good case for that. I mean, we haven't talked about it, but, um, you know, this entire now hour and 44 minute conversation, you've made a good case for that. I'm wondering what you see could have been other than the Enlightenment, you know, those several centuries ago.
1: That's a good question. Someone I heard recently said, speaking on the subject, they said that uh, the, the Enlightenment, they, they, shared, they shared my position on it, but they said that the Enlightenment couldn't have been a mistake because it's what happened.
0: That's kind of where I'm at.
1: Yeah, that it, that it, was, it was inevitable. And and it's 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 part of reality, it's part of history, and it's part of the cycle. It's it, it was mm-hmm. it was inevitable. It was going to happen. So it's not it's not a mistake. It's just it is what it is. And you can yeah. you then you can evaluate it in terms of its positive and negative effects. And ultimately, when I said it, I said it to be provocative. I, I said okay. it to 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 get people riled up. Ultimately, my position is that the Enlightenment was was a um, much had a had a the the positive the the negative impact of the Enlightenment outweighed the positive. And a lot of it was really, especially now having gone back as far as the, the earliest parts of the apostolic tradition and kind of started to see where some of these ideas came from and, and where they led to. And then a lot of the major thinkers of the Enlightenment were not, these were not like pleasant, honorable, noble yeah. people. <laughs> yeah. They were, some of them were downright debauched and degenerate. Yeah. And, and so their motivations for this, like like uh, um, like Voltaire, like their motivations were like explicitly to undermine and and uh, remove the influence of the church. Which I mean, sure, there's aspects of the church that were definitely very negative. There was lots of I know that, that like Voltaire in particular. I think it was was he hated the conflict between Catholics and Protestants. And so his, his reasoning was that if you could just eliminate, if you could eliminate that conflict, the world would be better for it. And I suppose that there's maybe a, a seed of, of um, like it's a positive sentiment or something like that in there that perhaps there's something that's noble about it. But, but ultimately comparing the spirit of the enlightenment to the spirit of Christ, you see a very, very sharp dichotomy. You see... A, uh, um, especially through the conceptual and the conceptualization of of um, paganism, the various pagan um, view views of the world and the way that they um, those the pagan cultures behaved, the way that they the rituals and stuff that they practiced, and how those reflected the way that they saw the world, and then seeing that echoed and reflected in the Enlightenment and the way that these ideas were being conceived of and why they were being conceived. And what was motivating them, and the people that were thinking of them—all of this stuff was not like these were not people whose goal was necessarily to make the world a better place, so to speak. A lot of it was very um, was was motivated by self and motivated by um, a desire to undermine existing institutions and replace them with with different ones that were you know so-called better institutions. This is where um, Jay Dyer, to shout him out again, he does a lot of really good work on the history of capitalism. And um, he he refers to it typically as, he doesn't use capitalism as often, he refers to it as the revolutionary tradition. And out of the revolutionary tradition came capitalism, communism, liberalism, uh, libertarianism, all, all the isms all came out of it. And what he very in great detail outlines is that these were... These were largely aristocratic and mercantilist notions that were being developed by people whose financial interest was directly affected by the sovereignty of kings. And they wanted to undermine the kingly sovereignty. So they thought, if we can conceive of a system that will, will, uh, will, will, will induce people to act, to, to leave past allegiances and act according to new ones, Essentially, we'll have more customers. That's kind of the the, the 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 motivating spirit of it. So, like tariffs originally, the the purpose of tariffs was essentially so that kings could protect their territory and protect their people from merchants from from merchants whose goal was to who didn't have an allegiance to a country necessarily. Mm-hmm. Their goal was just to expand their own their own horizons, and they saw the fact that a king owned a territory and wasn't necessarily going to play ball with them. Well, that's that bad for business. So, uh, there's, there's, there's a long elaborate over generations. All of these, these ideas were being developed, but they were motivated. These weren't motivated by people who were like, um, you know, well, this would, they weren't motivated by like compassion for the human race. They were like, how can we change the existing system so that my personal position will be better? Or the position of the people I care about will be better, at the expense of someone else.
0: That's pretty cynical.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it's also inevitable. It's also like this is this is the story of this is the story of humanity. This is the story of as far back as you want to go. This is this is the way that that human beings divorced from s- divorced from their creator. This is the way that human beings behave. Mm-hmm.
0: As we exit the Enlightenment era and enter into this new thing that, I mean, Cyprian has called it the dim age to kind of differentiate it from the dark age. But the, you know, I mean, the dark ages are so-called. I mean, they they weren't actually dark ages. Not at all. That's when the world's greatest art and architecture and some of the most beautiful and glorious traditions that we have came about. Like that's why, that's why I would consider myself more, you know, white pilled, which I I, I don't, I don't really like the, the pills as I've told you, but like, I'm, I'm extremely optimistic, especially for, you know, the next several centuries, if, you Mm -hmm. know, if not the next couple, the next decade or so, we're entering a new age of like glory and honor. And that's, that to me is kind of cool. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I've, I've said that I'm short-term pessimistic and long-term optimistic.
0: Yeah.
1: I think that uh, one one interesting point about the Dark Ages was uh, uh, I was listening to, a, to an Orthodox uh, subdeacon who was doing a, a catechism class and he was talking about this and he said, the Dark Ages, he's an like, old guy from Kansas or something like that. He's like, Dark yeah. Ages, he's like, The only place the Dark Ages happened was in Europe. There was no Dark Ages in the East. The the, the so-called Dark Ages in the East was a time of great prosperity and art and and literature. And and what's interesting is that Rome sacked Constantinople and brought back all of this stuff from Constantinople. And then the Renaissance happened. Yeah. The Renaissance immediately followed after it.
0: That's how Thomas Aquinas learned
1: Aristotle. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. So that like... Even in the so, so so ultimately calling it dark ages is 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 like uh um, is like is calling it dark ages is not just Western propaganda. It's it's uh, Enlightenment Western propaganda or yeah. post Enlightenment Western propaganda. Um, I think it was was it Rousseau who called it the Dark Ages. Oh, I, I don't no remember. Idea. It was the the term was coined by with either Rousseau or Vol- it might have been actually Voltaire who might have who yeah. might have said it, but. Uh, um and so and the the goal there was to say it was dark because that's when the church was in power but now we're being enlightened because we're moving we're evolving beyond the church and, and look where we are now <laughs> mm-hmm. um but but yeah like long term th- this gets back to the like well are we at the end of the are we are are we upon the end of the world now like is this the is this the end of the age or are we just finishing one and entering into another.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. We, I don't know. I don't know that it's the end of the world. I, I'm my money's on it not being the end of the world because all the other ends of the world have not come to fruition yet, but definitely we're at the end of the age. I, I think that's, and that's one thing that it can be a little bit ambiguous. I mean, in, in the Latin seculum is both kind of world and, and age. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you think of the end of the world, all of these little apocalypses. I mean, you know, the, the the book of Revelation and Jesus's sermon on the Mount of Olives both describe the fall of Jerusalem in the year 70. And, you know, both of the, the gospel in which it is most elaborately laid out and Revelation very easily could have written been written after that event took place, you know, writing with hindsight. Uh, some people, some people Put the book of Revelation as like the very first book of the New Testament to have been written, but you know some some don't. It, it really doesn't matter. Uh, these apocalypses happen all the time. But the, Certainly, what, if you what does you, the word apocalypse know, mean? It just means unveiling,
1: right? It's a revealing, yeah. right? The yeah. curtains being pulled back, and that's that, that's what's happening right now. That's what all across the world we're seeing mm-hmm. the curtain is being pulled back. So we are in an
0: apocalypse. Yeah, and they're scary. I mean, that's it's uh i've been i've been thinking a lot like like <laughs> it was really weird um my partner and i watched this video the other day on liminal spaces in video games and a liminal space like so liminal just means like threshold it's mm-hmm. a it's a it's a point of transition from one one space into another but if you look at it historically we're in one of those spaces and in in art especially in video games i guess they're very creepy spaces mm-hmm. it's like it's it's like an empty warehouse or like feeling around in the dark. Like there's a reason that we're afraid of the dark uh, or, or afraid like, you know, I mean, imagine being a janitor in an elementary school and you're working overnight and like you have all of these corridors and hallways and, and you have no idea. You, like you assume that there's nothing around the next corner, but there might be, you don't know. It may be a, it may be a murder or maybe a ghost or, you know, it, it just may be a spider web, but it's this sense of unease in these spaces. And in video games, it's those weird corridors, especially like in the old, like bad graphics, like the original Doom games and things like that. Or even like the the old uh the Windows ninety-five screensaver that was just like like a maze where you were mm-hmm. bouncing against or just
1: visualizing that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Those are computer-generated liminal spaces, but there's also historical liminal spaces, and I think we're in one, and that's why everything feels so weird and creepy right now, um, because we don't know what's around the next corner. But you know, I mean, just like, just like in in video games, there there is the potential for victory, there mm-hmm. is the potential for a happy ending, and it may just be that we're afraid of spooks. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so we're, we're we're coming in as we're in an apocalypse,
1: we're in an unveiling. Yeah. It's it's liminal space because. As the, as the unveiling is happening, we're realizing that something was there and we didn't realize it. Yeah. And that's that, that's a scary feeling. That's, a, yeah. you know, that's like you're feeling in the dark. You don't want to touch something when you're feeling around in the dark. You'd rather have <laughs> nothing either. You'd rather flip the light on and realize you're in an empty room. Yeah. If you flip the light on and there's a face looking at you, that'll freak you out. Yeah. But after you pass that point of being freaked out, now you have new information that helps you evaluate the world better, that helps you relate to the world better. You now have a more honest or, or a truer perspective on the world that's more accurately reflecting what's actually there. So it's a, it's a painful process while you go through it, but as you come out the other side, that pain brings you new knowledge. And that new knowledge is now, that's not unearned knowledge because that's, that's the, the fruit. When Eve is tempted, she was tempted with unearned knowledge and, and she and Adam took it. And so they got that unearned knowledge. Well, what was that knowledge? They had knowledge of the good. They, they, they walked with Christ. They knew him personally. They, they saw him directly. They knew the good. What did they not know? They didn't know the evil. So they, they got this unearned knowledge that they weren't prepared for. And as a consequence of that, they were, they, they, they were given mortality as a gift to enable them to repent. Because repentance isn't possible for an immortal immortal being, you have to have the mortality to be able to repent. So they were given mortality as a gift so that they would be able to repent. They wouldn't be trapped in eternal um, uh, uh, unrepentance like the demons, like the, like the fallen angels. But they, were, they got this unearned knowledge. But when you, get, when you go through a painful experience and you come out the other side with knowledge, you earned that knowledge. Mm-hmm. You paid for that knowledge with the pain mm-hmm. of the experience. And so that's where we're at now. And, and so like you, I'm very optimistic about the future. The question is really, um, how are you going to navigate through this apocalypse? How are you going to navigate through the, un- the unveiling? How are you going to position yourself so that you don't get taken out by whatever is going to happen on one hand? But then on the other hand, how do you not only not get taken out, but how do you benefit? How do you come out ahead? Yeah. And that's the, the those who, there's a, there's a great opportunity here because, Most people aren't looking for something new. They aren't looking for an unveiling. So those of us who are are the ones who are going to get this new information first and we can act according to that information first. And that's a, that's ultimately, yeah, that's a white pill. The only thing for me is like, so this is a Stephen and I have been talking with the show, and, and we've, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about politics and especially libertarian politics. And we've both become kind of been getting very weary of it. Because it's kind of like you can only talk about the same thing so many times yeah. before. Before it's kind of like, and then it, and then it, it, it. Sometimes we just finish the show and we're like, oh man, I just want to. I just need to take a shower. Like this, just that didn't that that uh, tired of talking about the same old stuff and and you know pearls before swine all that kind of thing. Um, and there's other things that we're very interested in. One of the things that I'm very interested in is cosmic cycles and numerology and. Um, different mystical secrets and un, an unknown history of the past. And um, like Graham Hancock's books just lit my mind on fire. And Randall Carlson is one of my favorite people in the world. So the one thing that I'm um, cautious about that I want to learn more about is the, this idea that there are um, actual, um, like, like physical cosmic phenomena that show up every so often that create some type of global cataclysm, whether it's a pole shift, whether it's a um, a, a comet impact, whether it's you know uh, a change in uh, in in, in a gravitational force that causes um, earthquakes and volcanoes or tornadoes, like all that sort of thing. There's evidence that periodically, on a regular recurring pattern, there's some of something like this that basically resets human civilization, and according to these patterns, we may be due for something like that. We're either due for a small one or we're due for the big one. And really that's what the Mayan calendar was pointing to. Yeah. The Mayan calendar wasn't saying it's going to be the end of the world. It said it's going to be the end of the fourth age. And it wasn't that it's mm-hmm. going to be on December, what is it, 20th, 21st, 20th, whatever the date was in 2012. That was a miss. A, mis, uh, a commercialized uh, misinterpretation of the whole thing, what it was was that that was the that was either the beginning of the age or the midpoint in the in the period where it was like around this time is when the fourth age will end and the new age will begin, and within the Mayan tradition, each of the ages that ended the end of the age was associated with massive cataclysm with like flood narratives and um, fire and brimstone so so that's so. It seems like we're transitioning into a new age, for sure. And my question is, is all of this stuff ha- that's happening, um, is, it, is the new age that's going to begin, is this transition purely a um, like cognitive or psychological or philosophical change? Or is there an actual physical phenomenon here is there a, is there a physical dynamic to this? There's a channel that Andrew uh, Popular Liberty has turned me on to, called Suspicious Observers, and the guy is it's it's Observers is spelled with a with a zero instead of a, an O. The, the guy's name is Ben Davidson, and he um he specializes in in studying the sun and um the the magnetism on the earth and the different plates and the the climate and all this sort of thing. He's incredibly prolific. And part of his theory is that a lot of these cycles that we see are driven by sun activity, um, by uh, 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 like uh, bursts of radiation and that sort of thing. And essentially his, his hypothesis is that we are due for a big one. And the big one is on the level of like a large part of the United States will be underwater. Mm-hmm. or. Um, you know, potentially even, potentially even the biggest, like the, the big mamma jamma, the biggest of the big one that, um, is like Atlantis being destroyed. It's like, it's like resetting human civilization back to hunter gatherer. And if something like that was going to happen, it's going to be somewhere between like 2030 and 2050 is kind of what the, what the, what it looks like according to the different patterns and stuff. So, so that's what's like hanging in the back of my mind. Like, is there something like that coming? There's a lot of evidence that it is. The, the the North Pole is moving constantly. Magnetic North Pole, it's moving and it's accelerating. It's moving at something like 50 feet a day or something like that. And it's, and it's accelerating and has been. And so then there's also really interesting theories on, um, on like pole shift stuff. And um, like the it, it, one theory is that it, there isn't a... There's no such thing as an ice age per se. There's always an ice age. It's just that the ice age is localized on the poles and the poles shift. Hmm. Okay. And so when the poles shift, then something else becomes the ice age. Something else that now is in an ice age and everything else all melts and thaws out and looks like, oh, there was an ice age here once. Well, it's not that there was an ice age there once. It's that that used to be one of the poles. Okay, and the earth's crust shifts every so often on a, on a on a regular pattern and this is what's caused all of these myths and stuff of the past and all this evidence of global cataclysm and everything so another really this, interesting theory all of this stuff is laid out at suspicious observers i don't know if the pole shift thing is is from him that's something that i got from uh where did i get that from i think graham hancock talks about it randall okay. carlson may talk about it and uh Um, yeah, ask Andrew about it. Andrew will have good stuff to direct you for, um, for that. That's pretty interesting. I'll I'll do that. So those, those are the kinds of things that, that like, this is the stuff that I want to talk about on the show going forward is trying to understand these kinds of, these kinds of dynamics. And, uh, um, so, yeah, so, so from a, from a purely social level, I'm very optimistic about the future. My question is: Are yeah? Are we, are we going to be alive to to experience that that future, or is something? Is something going to hit the reset button? Yeah. But like uh, like Jason Stapleton says, one of my favorite things I've ever heard from anyone anyone say is: "Never bet on the end of the world because it'll only happen once,
0: and when it does, you'll have bigger problems." Mm-hmm. It's a good yeah. It's good words to live by. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Um, let's wrap it up. That was yep. a that was a very good conversation. It does not feel like two hours. That went fast. So. I, I'm really hoping that the, that the audience enjoyed it as much as I did, and I trust you did. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't you go ahead and plug whatever you want to plug, and we'll get out of here.
1: Um, yeah, you can find King Pild on YouTube. Uh, King Pilled, K-I-N-G-P-I-L-L-E-D-L, one word. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at RealKingPilled. Um, we've got some episodes that we've uploaded on the podcast. They're, they're old episodes that I was able to get uploaded. Um, so if you go to a, a, any, any podcatcher, I think we've got like half a dozen episodes up so far. So you can listen to them there and we'll get more uploaded here when we can. Um Yeah. That's, those are the two things, Twitter and, and YouTube. That's where you'll find me the right. most.
0: Sweet. And I highly recommend your subscribe star as well. Cause uh the discord chat is not overwhelming like some discord chats, but what is there is always uh thought provoking and just a bunch of good people to talk to. So
1: I've been, I've, I appreciate you saying that I've been absolutely blown away by, I, I, I I feel like I'm around better people than me, like guys that I yeah. learn from there, especially at the, at the top level, the, war, the Warlord level. We have a round table we do every other, every other week. And it's been some of the most mind-blowing conversations that I've ever had. So these, the, the guys are absolutely fantastic. So yeah, yeah. subscribe. star.com slash kingpilled.
0: You were saying that uh, I'm not on the Warlord yet, but maybe I will be one of these days. All right, cool. Well, thanks a lot, Matt. It's been thanks, a pleasure talking it. to you, and I will talk to you soon. Hopefully, we'll be able to do our part two with LB um, here in the next month or so. That'd be great.
1: Totally, let's do it. All
0: right, cool. See you later. See you. Thanks for checking out this episode of Blackbird. If you like what you heard today, be sure you're subscribed on your podcatcher of choice. You can find me anywhere by searching Blackbird with James Gentlemen. Follow me on Twitter at James LJ. My DMs are always open, so if you have feedback, ideas, or have something interesting to say and would like to appear on Blackbird, just drop me a line there. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to all my interviews, plus plenty of bonus content, head over to blackbirdpodcast.com. Toss me $7 a month or $70 a year, and I'll get you all set up. You can also find me on Odyssey, where I'm posting the video of my interviews. Just search for Blackbird there or click the link in the show notes. And finally, if you haven't already, please leave me a rating and a review over at iTunes. It really helps the show. Thanks again for listening to Blackbird. And until next time, live free.